Please open up your Bibles tonight to our scripture text found in John chapter 1, verses 19 to 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. You will need to decide whether you are going to listen to the testimony of John the Baptist. And here's what's at stake. Look at verse 33. John said, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize, that's God, he who sent me to baptize said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Spirit. The testimony of John is not based on what he knows about Jesus. It's based on what God told him to say about Jesus. And therefore, what's at stake in the decision you will make now as to whether to listen to John's testimony is whether you will listen to God. Of course, you, you don't have to believe that. But if you're not going to believe it, that John speaks for Jesus, you should base that choice on understanding and not on ignorance. Shouldn't you? And therefore, we need to pay attention to what John says so that we can render a wise judgment as to whether we will believe what he says is the Word of God or not. And therefore, both in this service and next week, we will focus our attention on the testimony 
of John the Baptist, which is the testimony of God to his son. Let's pray. So, Father, I pray for right, true, wise, informed decisions to be rendered concerning whether we will believe John or not. If any came totally oblivious to what John testifies concerning the one whom he saw, grant that they would learn rightly now, so that they might know and form a right judgment with your help concerning these things. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. John the Baptist appears at the beginning of the Gospel of John and the beginning of every other Gospel in the New Testament. And then he falls into the background relatively quickly. And the reason is because John the Baptist is a link or a bridge between the Old Testament and the New. He's like a, a root of a tree. And the tree is the New Testament flowering into the New Covenant and the, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the coming of the Messiah and the death of the Son of God for sins and the rising from the dead. All this glorious tree that's going to grow up in the New Testament. John is like one of these, if you've ever seen a big tree that's got roots that go out and then down and maybe five or six feet out from the tree, there's a big knob that comes up and then goes down. John's like that. He's here, he's visible, he's part of the tree, you know he's part of the tree, you can see him, he's walking around, but he's a root that went back down into the Old Testament. He's like a, a prophet like Elijah, leather skins, the other Gospels tell us, eight grasshoppers, weird Elijah type. And he says he's a voice now saying to those, while the tree is coming up, look at the tree. So John is a bridge. That's why he appears so quickly, and he's gone. His death isn't even reported in the Gospel of, of John. He's just here with a magnificent testimony. And then he's gone because things are changing. We need new wineskins. And he's coming. One of the purposes of John the Baptist's ministry is to make sure that nobody confuses him with Jesus or the Messiah, Jesus, or the prophet or Elijah reincarnate. What he does is get a running start in verses 6 through 8, another bound in verse 15, and then he launches in verses 19 and following. And he launches with three amazing testimonies about Jesus. And that's what we're going to look at in this service. Number one, verse 23. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40 verses 3 through 5 which goes like this I'll read you from Isaiah because it's so relevant a voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord 
Make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The word Lord in Isaiah 43-5 is all caps in the ESV. You've noticed that as you read your Old Testament. Sometimes the word Lord is all caps, and sometimes it's lowercase with a big L at the front. It's because there are these different Hebrew words that are very difficult to translate. Whenever you see it all caps, it's the proper name for the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh, the creator God, the sustainer of the universe, the one who made covenant with Abraham. This is Yahweh or Jehovah. And John quotes that about Jesus. So this is the first amazing testimony. I am the voice. I am the voice prophesied in Isaiah. Make straight the way of L-O-R-D. The Lord. There he is. This is not surprising to us. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. What else would you call Him? I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh, come in the flesh. That's number one. Number two. When they ask Him why He's baptizing, verse 26 is His answer. I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now our focus next week, Lord willing, will be on baptism with water and baptism in the Holy Spirit. What is the meaning of those terms? That's where we're going next week. Lord willing. But here, his answer of why he's baptizing is not to say anything about his baptism, is it? Verse 26, I baptize with water. Among you stands one you don't know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. So what's, what's his answer? Why are you baptizing? And his answer is, there's one in your midst. And he is so magnificent, so superior to me, so high above me in every regard that I am not worthy to untie his shoe. That's why I'm baptizing. It's all about him. The point is, it's not about me. Stop asking questions about me. Prophet, Elijah, the Christ. No, 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 not, not, not. It's not about me. It's about the one whose shoes I dare not even get near. He is so infinitely superior to me. It's all about him. That's his second testimony. Number three. The main one. In verses 29 to 30, John the Baptist says the main thing about why 
the Lord of glory came. Why did the Word become flesh? Why did the eternal Son of the Father take on human flesh? Verse 29, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man whose rank is before me, because he was before me. Now that last verse, 30, is an exact repeat of verse 15 from last time. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. And the point was to emphasize that because Jesus was absolutely before me, in the beginning was the Word. Before there was anything, there was Word. Because he is absolutely before me, his rank is infinitely above me. And he's saying that in order to underline the capacity of Jesus to be the Lamb of God. That's why they're joined here. The reason for saying his rank is so high and he is from eternity is because this is what it takes for a person to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No ordinary human being can be the Lamb of God. No ordinary human being can take away the sin of the world. So everything, this is my understanding of the, of the composite of, of John's testimonies, everything he's saying by way of exalting Jesus is designed to show why he is a suitable Lamb of God. Why he can be the Lamb of God. Why he can take away the sin of the world. Everything he's saying about him is aiming at this. He is the Lord God of Isaiah 40. He is so great, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. He is so infinitely superior to me. He is absolutely before me and ranks above me. And therefore, therefore, he is able to be the Lamb of God. Verse 29 again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's going to repeat it. Look, at, look down at verses 35 to 36. Next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And this time, the testimony had its appointed effect. They left him. The whole point of John the Baptist is, leave me. Leave me. My whole testimony is, him, 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 leave me. I'm gathering you that you might leave me. I'm baptizing you that you might leave me, that I might decrease 
and he might increase. And so it, it begins to happen, and it happens very, very quickly, and John will soon be a zero in this gospel. Is there a lesson here for us? We who want to be somebody. There is. The whole emphasis, I believe, of John's testimony is aiming at this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John is warning us here. Don't ever think that you or anybody else that has ever lived on this planet or will live on it. Anybody else can take away the sin of the world. There is no other way for the sin of the world to be taken away than by the Lamb of God. And there is nobody else qualified to be the Lamb of God besides the one who came into the world as the very Word and the very Son of God. The Lamb of God had to be the God-man. The Word became flesh, and now we see the central reason why to take away the sin of the world. When John, the gospel writer, wrote his first letter, it's just so wonderful to have a, a gospel writer who also wrote letters. Because if you read them beside each other, the light that is shed is huge. Both directions. So we get to do that. When he wrote his first letter, listen to what he said with regard to the Lamb of God and the taking away of the sin of the world. This is First John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared to take away the sins of the world. In him, there is no sin. So the reason the Son appeared was to take away the sin of the world. That's the reason for the incarnation. Now, question. Why did John add in 1 John 3, 5, and in him there is no sin? He added it because that's the way lambs had to be in order to take away sin. Spotless. Let me read you the Old Testament description of how animal lambs foreshadowed the lamb. All right? Let's read it. This is Leviticus 4.32. If he brings a lamb as his offering for a sin offering, he shall bring a female without blemish and lay his hand on the head of the sin offering and kill it for a sin offering in the place where they kill the burnt offering. Then the priest shall take some of the blood of the sin offering with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar, the burnt offering, and pour out all the rest of the blood at the base of the altar, and the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be 
forgiven. It had to be without blemish. Now, every serious Old Testament believer and every knowledgeable Christian knows the blood of animals cannot take away human sin. That's a quote from Hebrews 10.4. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So what's going on in Leviticus? Parables are going on. Dramas are going on. Prefigurings are going on. Foretastes are going on. Pointers are going on. Moses points towards the grace. Grace upon grace. Oh, it was a grace to have this parable of dead animals in the Old Testament on whose head we could lay our hands and by substitution it goes instead of us. And inside we say, no way could that dead animal take away my sin. That's pointing to something else that's going to take away my sin. And that's what John knows and he knows it well. He has read Isaiah 53. He has read Leviticus. He's a prophet. Prophets are saturated with the Word of God. It's happening right then. It's happening. The parable is coming true. The pointer and its reality is emerging. And I'm a root down in Leviticus and down in Isaiah, but I'm bulging out here and say, there it is. There's the Lamb of God. And I'm willing to become nothing if people would turn to him. Peter didn't write a gospel, though he probably is behind um, Mark as the main testimony. But he did write an epistle. And he did talk about the Lamb of God, and he did relate it to our sins. Let me read his testimony. This is 1 Peter 1.18. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb with out blemish or spot. So there it is. The reason John in his epistle said he came to take away sin and he is without sin is because that's what lambs have to be. Without blemish, without spot. So you and I don't qualify. We need a lamb. We can't be the Lamb. Every one of you needs a substitute, and no animal will do, and no sinful human will do. No sinner can take away the sin of a sinner. How is it that Jesus was without sin? Everybody born normally is sinful. Everybody's born with sin. It says so in Romans 5.12. 
Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all have sinned. So how comes it that when the Word became flesh, He didn't become sin? Is He not a man? And the answer is, Jesus was not born like you and I. He didn't have an earthly father. God ordained that the God-man would be the God-man and therefore would be born of Mary by God, not Joseph. So I'll read it to you. This is Luke one thirty. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, Son of God. He was holy like nobody is holy. And stayed holy all his life. And today is holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, Lamb and Lord of all. That's how he could do it. That's how he was spotless. He was God, the God-man, without sin. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and everything about him suited him to become the Lamb of God. So what does it mean? What does it mean, behold the Lamb of God, who now is suited, as only he can be, to take away the sin of the world. What does that mean? That the Lamb takes away the sin of the world. What does it mean? It means two things for the Jews. Two amazing things. Both of which are profoundly relevant for us Gentiles too. Number one, the first thing it means is that the God-man would die. That's what lambs are for. 
either eating or sacrificing. Nobody was thinking pets. Lambs are for being slaughtered. I use the word slaughtered not for effect, but for this reason. Only John in all the New Testament uses the Greek word svadzo, which is what you do to an animal to kill it. You slaughter them. It's found in Revelation especially. Behold the lamb who was slaughtered. It's usually translated slain, softening it up a little bit. He became a lamb so that he could be slaughtered. That's the first thing it means. To be the lamb of God and to take away the sin of the world, he had to be slaughtered. Meaning number one of John's testimony is the Son of God took on human form so that he could be slaughtered. That's number one. Number two, it meant that the whole world would benefit from this and not just Jews, though he was the Jewish Messiah had been prepared for in a tiny little part of the world by a tiny little people called Israel and was their Messiah. And John says, John, the last of the great Old Testament prophets, behold the Lamb of God who takes away, and then perhaps to shock every narrow-minded Jewish person, the sin of the world. That's the second thing it means. He was called the Lamb of God because he would die. And he would die so that the world would have its sin taken away. Now, we need clarity on this. We need more. I think the best way to get it is to go to that piece of the Gospel of John where those two realities... He would die, and he would die for the world, come together. It's chapter 11. I invite you to go there with me. John chapter 11. And we're going to look at verses 50 to 52, the words of Caiaphas, the high priest, spoken better than he knew prophetically, John tells us. John tells us these words are true, though they came out of the mouth of the high priest. This is what Caiaphas says about Jesus, speaking prophetically by the Holy Spirit without even knowing it, John says. Nor do you understand, this is John eleven fifty. nor do you understand that it is better for you, you Israel, you Jews, it is better for you that one man should die for the people, that's Jewish people, not for, and, and, and that the whole nation should not perish. He said this of his own accord, not of his own accord. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only. 
but also to gather into one the children of God scattered abroad. He will die for the Jews, but not just for the Jews, but for people scattered all over the world. I wonder if that last verse sounded familiar to you. There's a verse in 1 John. It's almost a paraphrase of, I mean, it is a paraphrase, or 1 John is a paraphrase of it. Let me read it, and then I'll read the 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Now, 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. What's a propitiation? A propitiation is what happens in God when our sins are taken away. As long as your sins rest upon you, God in justice must oppose you, be wrathful to you, and ultimately condemn you. But if your sins could somehow be taken away, God would be propitiated, meaning his wrath would be satisfied. It would be removed, which is precisely what happened, both when Jesus, the Lamb of God, dies Sins are taken away, and wrath is removed. If that doesn't happen, let me read you what John 3.36 says happens. John 3, verse 36, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, do you feel the huge importance of what that just said? This is one gospel bearing witness to Jesus. And John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And chapter 3, verse 36 says, If you don't obey the Son, the wrath of God remains on you. Which means that when John said he takes away the sin of the world, he's not a universalist. Do you know what that means? That means he's not saying everybody is saved. He's saying... Anybody who believes anywhere in the world is saved. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world so that we might not perish, so that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him might not perish, but have eternal life. Your sins are taken away anywhere in the world, anybody in the world. That's what the world means here. 
You remember Revelation 5, 9? You were slain, slaughtered, Lamb of God, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and people and tongue and nation. From every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The point is not universalism here. The point is, whosoever will may have it. There is no racial barrier here. There's no ethnic barrier here. There's no socioeconomic barrier here. Every tribe, every people, every tongue, every race, every ethnicity, every socioeconomic level, you, Lamb of God, died to ransom a people for yourself and to gather the children of God from all the peoples of the world. And here it's happening, John the Baptist says, it's happening. The long-awaited Lamb of God, the long-awaited transaction that would bring to fulfillment everything that the Old Testament was pointing to is now happening. I close. Everybody that I'm speaking to over this video, there downtown, North Campus, Saturday night, Sunday morning, everybody there and everybody here in this room is deserving of wrath. There is one remedy in the world. It's not found in Hinduism. It's not found in Buddhism. It's not found in Islam. And it's not found in Judaism with the New Testament chopped off. It's found in Christ and Him alone. And I plead with you, through John the Baptist, through John the writer, through this John, who's not even worthy to untie the other John's shoes, I plead with you, behold the Lamb of God tonight, today. Behold the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world, meaning anybody, anywhere, who would throw themselves on mercy, believe and receive him as their lamb and their Lord. Your sin will be taken away for his sake. And his wrath will be removed. Let's pray. Father, we are entering into what the world would call holiday season. Soon Christians will call it Advent, where we mark in many ways some shared with the world like gift-giving, others not shared with the world like worship. Worship of the Word made flesh. And we're, we're so desirous of seeing Him. We want to see Christ. We want to see what John saw and the apostles saw and 
millions of people have been granted by grace to see. We want our eyes to go open wider and wider and our hearts to be more and more pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. God, come with purifying power in this church. God, drive sin out of our lives. Drive fear and greed and lust and anger out of our lives so that there can be clear-eyed sight of the Lamb of God. Very God of very God and very man of very man. Slaughtered to take away the sin of our lives. Oh, that we might see him, because if, if you would grant us to see him as he really is, magnificent as he is, humble as he is, like a lamb, mighty as he is, like a lord, a lion, we would love him so much. Our lives would be changed. Our witness would be bold. Our marriages would be healed. Our children would be amazed at us. And the world of the Minneapolis and St. Paul Twin Cities might feel the force of your presence. So we've got big longings, Lord, for these seasons. And we pray that you would come. In Jesus' name, amen.